Welcome to Work and the Future, a podcast about tomorrow, with your host, Linda Nazareth. Hello, and thank you for joining us today. Women have been making inroads in the workforce for decades now, and the good news is there seem to be plenty of companies that have them in the C-suite. You would expect that. Companies have been saying for decades that they're providing equal opportunities, they want women on the board, they want them throughout the organization. But how much progress really is being made? And if it's not as good as might have been hoped, how can companies turn things around? To talk about what's going on with women and their path to the C-suite, I'm joined today by Monica Hamori. Monica is an associate professor at the IE Business School that's in Madrid, and she's the co-author of a study that was published in the MIT Sloan Management Review, which looks at 40 years of data on executives in the largest U.S. corporations. I found it really interesting to talk to Monica about what the data shows about the progress and lack of progress if, about in women getting to the C-suite. And, you know, given that it's a four decade long data set, it tells us a lot of stories. I hope to talk to her about what the next decade or so might bring, which is interesting as well. It was a really great discussion. Please stay with us to hear it. So why are women stalling on their way to the top? To talk about that, I'm joined by Monica Hamori. She's associate professor at IE University in Madrid, Spain. Hello, Monica. Hello, Linda. Thank you very much for inviting me. Well, thanks for being here today. You know, I want to talk about this paper that you've published and some of the really interesting findings, but I just like to ask people about their own backgrounds and how did you end up studying this area? Well, first of all, I was born and raised in in Hungary, which is in Central Eastern Europe. And I finished my bachelor's and master's studies there. And after that, I worked as a junior consultant, uh, focusing on human resource management related issues. In 1998, I started my PhD studies at the Wharton School of the University of Pennsylvania under the supervision of Professor Peter Capelli, who is one of my co-authors on this project. And my research focuses on executive careers executive career success, executive search firms, and leadership development programs. And uh, it was in the last seven or eight years that I started to study issues related to gender diversity. And I really love this area of research for two reasons. First of all, because it's a very important research domain. And second, uh, especially the uh, research on the gender diversity in the top executive ranks. It's uh, a fascinating research domain with a lot of counterintuitive findings, uh, you know, with uh, you know, a lot of window dressing that firms are doing, uh, uh, you, you know, to promote these women uh, into top executive positions. So uh, this is kind of my background. Well, that's really interesting. And this study is really interesting. It's really comprehensive. Talk to us about how many people were covered by this, how many organizations. So we covered a hundred organizations. So uh, we look at the Fortune 100 employers. And as you know, these are the largest hundred employers uh, in the United States based on their annual sales figures. 
And we look at uh, the 10 highest ranking executives in each of these 100 organizations. So these, the titles typically include the CEO, the COO, the president, and also the division heads, the heads of product and geographical divisions, and also the so-called uh, uh, C-suite executives, such as the chief financial officer, the uh, CHRO, the CTO, et cetera, et cetera. For each of these executives, uh, we look at their the demographics, their educational backgrounds, and the career paths uh, that took these executives uh, to their current uh, executive position. Uh, we actually started this project in 2001, uh, when I was still a PhD student at the Wharton School of the University of Pennsylvania. And at that time, I worked under the supervision of Professor Peter Capelli, and it was his idea to start this project. So in 2001, we compared the top executives who held positions in the Fortune 100 companies with those who were at the helm of the Fortune 100 in 1980. And we chose 1980 as the comparison year because it represented a year before the huge recession of 1981. And uh, for many, it signified the last year of the so-called organization men or lifetime employment model where employers mostly promoted their employees from within. So they managed employees' careers from the entry level until retirement. Uh, so uh, our comparison point, our starting point was 2001. The comparison point was 1980. And we then followed up this study at two time points, 10 years apart. In 2011, and in 2021, last year, to see what has changed. And the study that you saw in the MIT Slow Management Review that came out uh, about two weeks ago is co-authored with Peter Capelli and also with my colleague at IE Business School, Rofio Bonnet, and with Samida Sambara, who is a research assistant at the Wharton School. And the article that was published actually has a time frame that only goes from 2001 to 2021. And the reason for that is that although we do have 1980 data, there were absolutely no women in the top executive ranks among those thousand executives in 1980. And it's really only since 2001 that women constitute a sizable portion of the top executive sample. Uh, indeed, uh, in 2001, about 11% of these top executive positions were had by women. In 2011, about 18% of these uh, executive positions had female leaders. And last year, we had 27% female representation in these positions. So we have a 20-year time frame, 2001, 2011, 2021. And this 20-year time frame provided us an excellent opportunity to compare women's career paths with the career paths of men. Okay, let's just uh, take that a bit at a time. First of all, it's a really powerful statement when you said when you looked at 1980, there was nobody, so you couldn't use that as the benchmark. So there's been progress. But when I looked at this and I looked at some of the details, I thought, you know what, there's been progress, but I'm kind of surprised that it's not a little bit better than it was in some areas. What's your overall impression of it? You know, the title of the MIT Sloan article uh, uh, was a little bit negative, maybe. It was a little bit gloomy because it talked about uh, 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 stalling. Right? Yeah. But, but to me, it's really 
it really is a mixed uh, picture. Uh, so, so there are disappointing findings and there are uh, some less disappointing findings. Let's start first maybe with the positive bit. And I think uh, it's really positive that the percentage of female leaders has steadily increased since uh, 1980. So as I said, last year, women had 27% of these leadership positions which means that in each company, now we have uh, two or three women uh, you know, in, in these leadership uh, positions. So female executives may no longer be considered tokens uh, in these uh, companies. I think uh, that's good news. Unfortunately, they are still far from women's overall representation in the U.S. labor force, which is around 47%. 47% of U.S. jobs are held by women. So we, female leaders are still far uh, from that figure, but they now comprise a, a, a sizable part of companies' leadership ranks. I think that's uh, the good bit. Um, what is really surprising and maybe disappointing is that on Fortunately, most of the female top executives still hold support roles. So they are the head of human resources, head of the legal function. Uh, they are leading communication or external relations. Um, but unfortunately, they are less likely to be in the CEO chair or president positions. And what is really disappointing is that this situation has not changed considerably in the past 20 years. So if you take a look at the proportion of roles, different roles held by the female executives in our sample, in 2001, 60% of the roles that women had were support roles. And unfortunately, this percentage is roughly the same. It is around 55, 60%. 20 years later, in 2021. And similarly, in 2001, only 7% of the roles that the female executives had were roles in the very, very top tier, that is CEO chair and president roles. And unfortunately, this proportion is exactly the same 20 years later. Only 6% of the roles in 2021 that were held by female executives represent these top uh, tier roles. Um, uh, to summarize this, we haven't seen a radical shift from support roles to top uh, uh, tier roles. And, and honestly, I, I would have expected that women become more and more, uh, that as women become more and more accepted in, uh, in the leadership ranks, as we have more and more women in the leadership ranks, we may see more and more women holding, sizably more and more women holding CEO and COO and general management roles, but this is uh, not what it happened. This is not what happened. Well, that's kind of disappointing because that's to say that the progress was made between 1980 and 2000 and the last 20 years have really not seen the same kind of improvement. However, some companies seem to be doing better than others. And talk about the ones that stand out to you. Uh, exactly. Um, well, there are, on the one hand, there are companies that operate in industries that you would not consider traditional talent magnets for female talent. And I'm thinking about industries such, such as heavy manufacturing or auto, auto manufacturing or software even. Uh, so in these industries that are uh, kind of hostile to uh, female talent, there are some companies that surprisingly managed to attract a lot of female leaders. They have a lot of female 
female leaders. A great example is Northrop Grumman. Uh, 58% of their leadership ranks is comprised by female leaders or Caterpillar also has uh, has a sizable uh, uh, number of female executives uh, at their helm. So I think these companies have been quite successful in attracting female talent. And if you analyze what they have done differently uh, from the other companies, they have uh, a lot of female executives who came from the outside. So the proportion of outsiders among their female leaders is very high. It's actually almost half of their uh, female leaders are outsiders. In the case of the rest of the companies, only one third of the female leaders are outsiders. So these companies disproportionately hired uh, from the outside. Another way to find best practices is to look at the companies in any industry uh, that are in the top quartile in terms of female in terms of female representation in the top uh, in the top executive ranks and again if you analyze the backgrounds of those women we again see that uh, there are a lot of outsider women uh, um, uh, in their leadership uh, uh, ranks and finally uh, you know another way to look at success is to look at the companies who managed to have at least one woman in their very top tier, in CEO, COO, or president roles. And believe it or not, there are only 19 companies in the Fortune 100 that have at least one woman in these positions. Again, we find that many of these female executives uh, came from outside. It's a very small percentage. Okay, let's talk about how companies can do better. Now, what you often hear is we need more women on boards, which of course we do. Does that help overall? Um, no, and probably this is a really surprising finding uh, because there is a sizable literature saying that uh, uh, you know women in board positions are associated with a host of beneficial outcomes for other female top executives, for female CEOs, for example, and for female senior level uh, managers, mostly with regards to pay issues. And indeed, consistent with this beneficial effect, we do find that in companies where we have a lot of women on the boards of directors, there are also more women among the 10 highest ranking uh, top executives. So that's good news. More women on boards, overall, more women in executive positions. However, unfortunately, most of this positive relationship is a result of these companies having many more women in support positions and not in the topmost tier among CEOs or chairs or not among the heads of geographic or product divisions and not among the heads of product-related functions such as research and development or operations. And I'm mentioning these two types of positions uh, uh, because uh, uh, you know the second-tier general management jobs and also uh, uh, the heads of operational functions, these are the two types of roles that are very important because uh, we consider them feeder roles into the CEO jobs. We don't find uh, uh, many women uh, there and even fewer women if you have many women uh, uh, among the board of directors. Okay, you alluded to this. You want, you're trying to create a pipeline of talent. 
Yes, you can hire from outside. We've said that works sometimes. But if you really do want to develop your own pool, what are the best practices there? First of all, uh, I, I, I think that employers need to hold on to their female talent uh, from, uh, from the entry level or at least from the managerial level. And for example, our data sets showed that the female executives in the Fortune uh, 100 employers were job hoppers. They actually worked for more companies and more industries than their male counterparts. And maybe this is not what they wanted to do. This was a necessity because they didn't get the opportunities that they wanted to have at the employer, especially after parental leave periods. So I think first you need to make sure that you provide the right opportunities for women so that they stay with your company. Uh, second, I think it's also very important that you need to rotate uh, female, uh, uh, female managers and executives across different job functions, from human resource management to sales, from sales to operations, et cetera, et cetera. And I'm saying that because uh, people uh, or managers typically need both industry and functional diversity to be promoted to top tier positions. Uh, uh, but our data show uh, that the executive women worked for more employers and also for more industries than their male counterparts during their career. In other words, uh, the female executives in our data set don't lack indus the industry diversity to be able to join these very top tier positions. However, they lack functional diversity. And moreover, they grew up in functions such as human resource management or the legal function, functions that rarely lead to general management rules. Employers should rotate women across functions. And I, I told you that earlier that they have to stick to their female talent. And I, I was also saying that because such rotation is much easier to do inside the same employer. Uh, because a move across functions is based on your potential and not typically not based on your existing skill set or experience. And such promotions that happen based on your potential are typically much easier to do inside uh, the same employer. Third, maybe sponsor women for stretch assignments uh, in the company. And stretch assignments, high stakes assignments, are essential for career advancement. However, the women need corporate sponsors who will put them forward for these high stakes assignments or jobs. Um, such higher ranking sponsors would be, I think, very important for any manager or any lower level executive. However, I think it's, uh, they are even more important for women uh, for two reasons. One of them is because research shows that women are less likely to apply for positions if they think that their knowledge and skills don't meet all the requirements. Two, research also shows that women are less self-confident at the workplace than men. For example, they react more strongly to failure. And there is an empirical study by Isabel Fernandez Mateo at London Business School showing that female executives were less likely to apply for a new job opportunity presented by an executive search firm, by a headhunter, if that headhunter had rejected them in the past. So this is why it's so important for them to have sponsors. 
Also, formal mentoring programs, very important. And uh, I think they have to be formal because often women may not seek out and minorities in general may not seek out higher ranking male mentors on their own. And finally, maybe last uh, a bit that companies have to recruit high ability women from MBA programs. And I'm saying MBA programs because we lack women in top tier jobs and also in those lower tier general management positions. You know, I mentioned the heads of different product and geographical divisions where women are largely underrepresented. However, these roles, as I said, serve as feeder roles uh, to executive to CEO position. Uh, so men and women have an easier time to reach these general management positions with an MBA degree rather than with a specialized degree, uh, uh, such as a law degree, for example. This is why I think it's a smart idea to recruit MBA graduates, because they have that educational background to be able to reach uh, these top uh, tier roles, as opposed to being confined uh, to support roles. Hey, Monica, we... Uh have to end it soon, but I want to ask you one more question. We didn't see a whole lot of progress, not as much as we would have liked in the last 20 years. How optimistic are you about the next 20 years? Great question. Um, I'm cautiously optimistic, tried, but, uh, but, 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 but I think there is a reason for uh, a lower level of optimism, and the reason may be the following. In this data set, we also tracked the companies who were in the Fortune 100, uh, who were among the Fortune 100 since 1980. We have 18 such companies in the data set. Think about General Electric, General Motors, Johnson and Johnson, uh, Procter and Gamble, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And these companies made spectacular progress in terms of women's representation in the labor force between uh, uh, 2001 and 2011. So from 7% of women, uh, these companies jumped to 26% of women in their leadership ro uh, roles. But what happened afterwards? Between 2011 and 2021, we actually see a dip. So from 26%, these companies went to 24% of female representation. And I'm just uh, 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 not very optimistic because what often happened is that these companies have been very, very brave in terms of appointing women to executive, uh, to, to important roles. Uh, uh, female leadership reached uh, 40 or 50% in these companies. And after that, it took a sudden jump from 50, it went to 20 or 30, from 40, it went to uh, uh, from 40, it went to 20. So I'm really curious to see what is going to happen to the Fortune 100 in 2031, uh, you know, when we plan to conduct uh, this study again, whether that 27% of uh, overall representation for female executives will grow substantially or, you know, uh, will, uh, uh, will, uh, or it will dip or stagnate. We'll have to see. I'm going to be optimistic about it, though, too. <laughs> Monica, thank you so much for talking to me today. You are very welcome, Linda. Thank you very much for your interest and for giving me this opportunity. Absolutely. Monica Hamori is an associate professor at the IE Business School in Madrid. Well, that's it for today. If you'd like to know more about Monica and her work, please take a look at our show notes. You'll find some links there. If you'd like to connect with me, I'm on Twitter at, at @relentlesseco. 
Now, if you did like this discussion about the future of work, please take a moment and leave a rating or a review wherever you get your podcasts. That really helps people to find us and we can keep these discussions going. Thank you so much for listening. And thanks as always to Stokely Audio for audio production. To learn more about work and the future and to see show notes, go to the workandthefuturepodcast.com. You can also contact us at comments at theworkandthefuturepodcast.com. The Work and the Future podcast with Linda Nazareth is a relentless economics production. Thank you.